Welcome back to the History of Cologne, a podcast about the city of Cologne today's Western Germany that is over 2000 years old. But until it became what it is today, this old city on the Rhine has endured a colorful and rich past. Hence it is full of events and narrations that represent European history like a microcosm. What awaits you this episode? We'll dive back into political intrigues and Frankish power politics. We will talk about Plectrude, probably the most powerful woman in the Frankish Empire of the early 8th century who resided in Cologne. But before we dive into Medias Res, here's this time's random fact about Cologne. There is a lighthouse in the Ehrenfeld district of Cologne. You heard exactly right. Not a traffic light, but a real lighthouse like the ones on the coast. But if you ever looked up where Cologne is geographically, you will quickly realize that even the shortest route to the sea from Cologne is 230 kilometers away. Built in 1895, the lighthouse, which is 44 meters high in total, was part of the Helios Company factory at the time. Cologne-based Helios Company was a pioneer in electrical engineering at the end of the 19th century. The lighthouse served as a test building to test newly developed beacons. To this day, this lighthouse shines as an industrial monument and a landmark of the Ehrenfeld district of Cologne in the northwest of the city. But don't worry, the light of the lighthouse is strongly dimmed and lets the local people sleep in peace at night. Let's get to the intro. First, let's start this episode with a little saga. This is to help us get started, so I'll leave out all the historical background for now, so let's begin. It is nighttime in the castle in Cologne. Here in the southeast of the city, in the ruins of the former Roman temple on the Capitol Hill, the young Frankish noblewoman named Ida is on a quest, in search of someone she is very fond of. She is looking for Charles, whose stepmother Plectrude had put him in the dungeon here. But why had Plectrude done this? Well, of course, as so often it was for power. Plectrude had until recently been married to Pepin of Herstal, the mayor of the palace of the Frankish Empire. The kings from the Merovingian dynasty were little more than figureheads at this time. First in the background and then more and more in the public eye, it was now the mayors of the palace at the court of the Merovingian kings who exercised the real actual power. But now Pepin was dead. His two sons had already died before him. Well, at least his two sons with his wife Plectrude. From an affair, Pepin had begotten another son, whose name was Charles, so that he, as the son of the deceased and powerful Pepin, could not even think of laying claim to this inheritance, Plectrude immediately had her stepson thrown into the dungeon below her castle in Cologne, where she resided. She immediately installed her grandson as the new mayor of the palace in the Frankish Empire. But of course, it was she who pulled the strings in the background. It seemed that Plectrude had won the power struggle and now ruled the Frankish Empire from the Rhine. She was now not only the most powerful woman in the empire, but overall the most powerful person in the Frankish Empire. 
but she had not reckoned with either. A Frankish noblewoman who had been brought up here at Plectrude's court in Cologne. The 16-year-old Ida had known Charles since childhood and what she felt for Charles was more than a mere sandbox love. As chance would have it, the garden of the castle on Cologne's capital hill, near today's Heumarkt, bordered directly on the dungeon where Ida suspected Charles was in. So it was not at all difficult for her to find a crush. For good Charles was sitting in his cell and singing a song out of boredom, which Ida could of course hear. She quickly found the barred window and could hardly believe her luck. When she saw how Charles was living down there in the dungeon, she secretly got herself a rope so that her lover could climb out. Since the barred window was hidden behind a bush, no one noticed that Charles was gradually removing the bars with tools brought by Ida, quasi prison break a la 8th century. When Charles was freed, he and Ida did what lovers do, and of course what else, he promised that as soon as he had gained power over the Frankish Empire, he would return to Cologne and take her as a wife. Charles left and began to fight on all fronts of the Frankish Empire. Against Neustria, the western part of the Frankish Empire in today's France, he fought bitterly with force of arms. He gradually took away his stepmother's allies in Austrasia, the eastern part of the Frankish Empire in present-day West Germany. Austrasia not to be confused with Austria or Australia. So roughly speaking, and he even fought against the pagan Frisians on the North Sea coast, who bitterly resisted conquest and missionary work by the Franks. A few years passed during which Charles became more and more powerful. One day, Charles was finally able to lay siege to Cologne. The city was left as the last bastion of his enemy stepmother. Plectrude, however, immediately realized that she had lost. She handed over the city to Charles and, above all, what Charles wanted most, the fortune of his deceased father. But Ida was nowhere to be found. The person who had helped him arrive at this point in the first place. He could not find her anywhere. That's when he learned the terrible news. Plectrude was so angry about Ida's betrayal in her eyes that she had forced her to become a nun as a punishment. Thus, from then on, Ida had to live a lonely existence on Capitol Hill in a convent for women that Plectrude had specially endowed. And so, as the years passed by, Ida sat more and more sad and hopeless in that very spot in the garden of the royal castle where she had once freed her beloved. So much was Plectrude still in a rage, especially as her stepson increasingly curtailed her power, that she had the rumor spread around the court that Charles had died in battle. And so it happened that one morning Ida was found motionless in the one place in the garden of the royal castle. She had departed from life through sadness. Charles was beside himself with rage and grief when he heard about this. He now forced his stepmother to take the veil as a nun. Until her death, which occurred a few years later, Plectrude had to live the strict life of a nun on Capitol Hill. She was also buried in this church after her death. And whenever Charles came to Cologne, he first went up the Capitol Hill and mourned his beloved. That was the saga about Ida, Charles Mortel and Plectrude.
I must confess that I already knew like 99% of all Cologne sagas and if not all by heart and in detail, then in broad strokes. This one, however, was the only one I didn't know yet. I'm sure you have many questions. Was Plectrude really so cruel? Who was Charles Mortel? What were mayors of the palace and why were they the real rulers of the Frankish Empire now? How did it come to this? And of course the question who was Plectrude really? What was her significance for our city? Well, let's try to unravel all this in detail. For that, we'll have to rewind for a moment. Let us first come to Plectrude. That she was truly one of the most powerful persons of the Frankish Empire of her time is by no means a legend. You know my standard saying, the written sources of this time are very scarce. It should get better only from Charles the Great on, that is, in about 70 years. Therefore, we do not have any knowledge when Plectrude was born at all. Certainly, she saw the light of day in the early half of the 7th century. Plectrude was born into a wealthy Austrasian, so East Frankish noble family, with numerous possessions in the Eiffel and the Moselle region. You surely know the Eiffel. From this low mountain range south of Cologne once came the drinking water of Roman Cologne, which was transported to the city by the 90-kilometer-long waterline. And south of the Eiffel itself is the Moselle region, then as now a great wine region with Koblenz as its center, where the river Moselle of the same name flows into the Rhine. Really a great region, if you haven't been there yet, you should definitely go. The exact family ties of Plectrude are still disputed in historical research, so I will leave out naming all her family members, which is not really important at all. What is undisputed is that Plectrude and her relatives belonged to one of the most influential families in the eastern part of the Frankish Empire. Also historically undisputed is that she entered into a marriage with the later Frankish mayor of the palace, Pepin of Herstel, also called in German as Pippin the Middle. You will see noble families like to give themselves the same names all the time already one and a half millennium ago. We will meet names like Pepin or Charles in the near future quite often. Their epithets, which we use here, they often received only afterwards by the historians. Plectrude's marriage was, of course, only for primarily political reasons. Marry for love? <laughs> what a nonsense. When Plectrude and Pepin said yes to each other, probably in a period around the year 670, this was a political drumbeat in the entire Frankish Empire. For here the two most powerful families in the Eastern Frankish Empire virtually allied themselves. On one side the family of Plectrude, with the possessions in the southern part of the Eastern Frankish Empire as described before, and on the other side the family of Pepin, who were also richly propertied in the Mars region and on the Moselle as well. An area of power which went really very roughly seen now from the southern Cologne region to Koblenz and from there far into the today's Netherlands. Really only very roughly seen from a geographical point of view. But what shall we call this new rising power, this new rising family? Best of all, of course, after the family or dynasty names. And here I would like to take a simpler route than 
historical research does. I will simply call Pepin's family clan the Carolingians. The Carolingians, of course, did not know at the time that they would later be called that. Historians after them did. Just as they were partly called at that time according to their mayor family heads at that time, like Arnulfinger or as here fittingly Pepinens. Do you also find this too complicated? Well, so do I. Good that we are here in a podcast and can take out this nevertheless from scientific view unclean abbreviation. Pepin's family, into which Plectrude married, we call the Carolingians here. With this marriage, another important foundation stone had been laid here in the Eastern Frankish Empire to promote the rise of the Carolingians as a new political power within the Frankish Empire form, which later, sorry for the spoiler, Charles the Great or Charlemagne should also rise. But don't you notice one thing about this? I'm only talking about Frankish nobles in one part of the Frankish Empire. But what about the Frankish kings of the Merovingian dynasty, whom we have been talking about for several episodes? Who were actually the real rulers of the empire, well, at least on paper? Well, we should include this in our consideration as well before we continue with Plectrude's story. When we talked about Bishop Cunibert of Cologne in the corresponding episode, everything was still in relatively good order among the Merovingians. Well, fratricidal wars had been fought against each other for the paternal inheritance and the rule in the Frankish Empire, yes, but at the beginning of the 7th century, first Clotar and then his son Dagobert, both friends and patrons of our Cologne bishop Cunibert, were able to unite the rule under one Merovingian king again. That was as said at the beginning of the 7th century. During the lifetime of Plectrude, the second half of the 7th century, the situation had changed more and more considerably. Weak and not-so-fortunate Merovingian kings followed in quick succession. And you know the Frankish law of succession. If one Merovingian king died, the dominion was always divided among his sons. I will spare you their names, which sounded typically Merovingian all very similar. Thus, the noble families at the royal court gained more and more power in the background, first and foremost our Carolingians in the east. With the office of mayor of the palace, they gradually expanded their power. The office of the mayor of the palace had undergone a clear transformation in the process. Once it was an office which you could describe simply from the job description as manager of the king's court, the proverbial proximity to the royal court was exploited by the Carolingians in Austrasia, the eastern part of the Frankish Empire, and increased their power. In turn, the Carolingians were not exactly squeamish about expanding their sphere of power as well. For each part of the Frankish kingdom, there was theoretically also a respective office of the mayor of the palace. Sounds complicated? Oh, yes, it was. At the time of Plectrude, there were, in theory, two or even three parts of the Frankish Empire with, theoretically, an own Frankish king from the dynasty of the Merovingians. These were the sub-kingdoms Neustria in the west, Burgundy in the south, and Austrasia in the east. In the latter was Cologne and the power base of the Carolingians. And now it becomes even more complicated. 
at this point in time in which we find ourselves, there were admittedly three mayor of the palace offices, one for each of these three parts of the empire, Austrasia, Neustria, Burgundy. But only one ruling Merovingian king, because I have no idea, maybe the other two died or he outlived them. What does that mean? There was only one puppet for three potential puppeteers, who were actually the real rulers. If that is not the best condition for conflicts. Again and again, the Carolingians fought against other noble families in the empire. They did not want to be in charge only in the east as mayor of the palace. They wanted to rule the entire Frankish empire with a single man from their clan as mayor of the palace. Especially in the western part of the Frankish Empire, in Neustria, the efforts of the Carolingians met with considerable resistance from the respective reigning Neustrian mayor of the palace, who, to no surprise, wanted to take control of the eastern part of the empire for himself. In the year of 675, Pepin sees his chance, for in this year, the Merovingian king of the recently reunited Frankish kingdom, for what felt like the hundredth time, King Schilderich II, together with his pregnant wife and son, was killed in a murder plot. Who were the masterminds behind that? Of course, the powerful families in the Frankish Empire. In this case, Neustrian nobles from the western part of the empire. What had the Merovingian king done wrong to deserve such a brutal demise together with his family? Well, Schilderich II had basically just tried to rule normally as a king should, and for the power-conscious nobility in Neustria, this was a circumstance they could not accept. Pepin saw his chance coming and gathered the Austrasian nobility behind him, so a few nobles from Cologne were with him as well. Together they went to war against the Neustrian mayor of the palace and his allies, who at the same time held the same office in the imperial part of Burgundy. But years of fighting did not bring much for the time being. On the contrary, Pepin first even got a bloody nose. The only partial success that Pepin was able to achieve in that conflict was that he was recognized as the head of the Austrasian part of the empire, to which the Neustrians had previously also laid claim. Okay, this is very complicated, I know. I don't want to go overboard again, but so much happened on the imperial level which would be so important for Cologne's further fate. In the end, Pepin did manage one piece of martial genius after all. A few years later, at the Battle of Tertri, in the northeast of what is now France in the year 687, Pepin defeated the Neustrian nobility and the mayor of the palace. Pepin's victory in this battle and the imminent death of the Neustrian mayor of the palace now virtually made Pepin the sole ruler of the empire. Let this be brought home to you once again. Here, formerly, they are not two rivals fighting for the royal crown, but merely for the office of mayor of the palace for all parts of the Frankish Empire. This post was so lucrative that wars were fought over it. But there the question arises to me, as certainly to you, why Pepin then did not simply dispose the Merovingian king Frederick III was even appointed by the Neustrians right before that. 
Why did Pepin simply not appoint himself as the new king? Well, that Pepin did not do so probably shows how deeply rooted the belief was in the Frankish Empire still, even if only nominally. A Merovingian, an heir of Clovis or Clodwig, had to be at the head of the Frankish Empire. The church also certainly had a say in the matter. So Pepin simply did not dare to open this barrel yet. With this introduction, we have now laid the foundation for why Plectrude could become so powerful. She and her husband had promoted each other. She had brought into the marriage extensive wealth and influence for her husband. It was with these resources that Pepin had first managed to pursue his claim to power in the Frankish Empire. There is much to suggest that Plectrude was more than just the wife of Pepin. In all known documents issued during Pepin's reign, Pepin and Plectrude are listed as joint issuers of the document. This is remarkable for that time when women were hardly granted any direct and open exercise of power on the highest political level or anywhere, maybe in a, in a monastery, but not on the political level. Parallel to the last episode, both spouses came on the scene as diligent founders of churches and monasteries. And here we come back to Cologne, because Plectrude also found a church in Cologne, the church of St. Maria in Capitol or St. Mary in the Capitol, on the former Roman Temple Hill in Cologne, which was discussed in the last episode. The building materials of the Roman Temple were generously reused. Due to its strategically favorable location, the area also served as a royal castle. The separation of church and state is still a little way off, you know. And on such a hill, it was also much safer than in the Praetorium. If it still existed intact at that time, unfortunately, we do not know that for sure. What exactly the church looked like at that time is difficult to determine after all the extensive reconstruction work. Since they had probably built on the remains of the former Roman pagan temple, the church was probably 10 meters by 32 meters with a rectangular floor plan. The present church building is a new construction from the 11th century in Romanesque style, but this also makes the present church building almost a thousand years old, so no less astonishing. Today the church of St. Maria im Capitol is a three-nave building with several apses and was the second most important church in the city in the later Middle Ages after Cologne Cathedral, even more important than St. Gerion in terms of status. But I don't want to tell too much about St. Maria im Capitol yet, because over the centuries it will come up again and again in our narrative. Again my tip to you, whether religious or not, such buildings always invite contemplation. Directly at the feet of St. Maria im Capitol is the Heumarkt, the Haymarket, and it's so full of bustle and the noise of traffic. If you need some peace and quiet, stop in here you'll immediately feel like you are in another world and the cloistered courtyard invites you to think about what it must have been like when only nuns were allowed to stay in this area. Or maybe you want to get some Harry Potter feeling. In such a hectic and ever-changing world, such places in the middle of a city are wonderful. But 
let us slowly bring the story of Plectrude and Pepin to an end. From 687 to 714, both ruled the Frankish Empire, of course always with a Merovingian king as a puppet in the foreground. But then Pepin died just before Christmas on 16th December 714, after a long illness. To add to Plectrude's grief, her two sons had also died shortly before, whom she had fought so long to once inherit all that she and Pepin had built. One son had died several years before and the other son had murdered in the same year of Pepin's death in 714. And now, many things occurred that we already heard at the beginning of this episode from the saga about Ida, Charles Mortel and Plectrude. Charles Mortel, the son of an extramarital relationship of Pepin, managed to escape after some time from the dungeon of the royal castle on the Capitol Hill, where his stepmother really had put him. So that is true. However, the person of Ida is only fiction. Charles Mortel's biography before the death of his father is unfortunately completely unknown to us. Like his father, however, Charles had to fight bitterly for his power. His stepmother, Plectrude, had already appointed her grandson, Teudobald, as the new mayor of the palace of the whole Frankish Empire. And for a short time, she actually ruled the Frankish Empire from Cologne as a powerful widow through her grandson, who had been appointed as mayor of the palace. However, this did not go so well, for Teudobald, although now the new mayor of the palace of the entire Frankish Empire, over all three parts, was still a young boy of only six years. Old enmities therefore quickly flared up again within the Frankish Empire. With their power base in the east, it was no wonder that it was again the Neustrian part of the empire in the west that dared to revolt against Plectrude. In September 715, they defeated Plectrude's grandson Teudobald in a battle. Well, I think winning a battle against a six-year-old is certainly not that hard. What happened to that poor boy after the battle is unfortunately not known. Teudobald is not mentioned ever again in historical sources from then on. So, i leave it to you what might have happened to him. So Plectrude has to endure that the Neustrian nobles for their part appoint now their own leader, Raganfried, as the new mayor of the palace of the entire Frankish Empire. The position had become vacant when the six-year-old Teutobald was defeated. On top of that, the Neustrians dragged a Merovingian man who was already living as a monk in a monastery for several years out of his hitherto quiet and regulated everyday life as a servant of God and made him the king of the Frankish Empire. Due to his and due to this fact, it should be clear that he also served only as a puppet for the new mayor of the palace from Neustria. In 716, only two years after Pepin's death, a Neustrian army then stood before Cologne and departed only from the area after Plectrude had handed over numerous treasures to them and had declared herself that she recognized Raganfried as a new mayor of the palace. This act caused her to lose prestige and influence in Cologne and of course in the Austrasian part of the Frankish Empire as a whole. And this unrest was of course exploited by Charles Martel, who assured the Austrasian nobility that he alone, as the real heir, the son of Pepin, could restore order. 
many of the Austrasian nobility will have followed his call and also many nobles from Cologne there. And so it happened that the Neustrians who were just on their way back home from Cologne were directly attacked and defeated by Charles Martel and his new one allies. The following year he defeated them once again. Now Charles Martel was as good as at his goal. If only there wasn't that pesky stepmother in Cologne. As in the legend from the beginning, Charles Martel besieged our Cologne and was able to enter the city very shortly thereafter. How I would have loved to overhear the conversation between Charles Martel and Plectrude. Deprived of her power, the church and its nunnery continued to serve her as a home until her death. When did she die? You know what I'm about to say. It is unknown due to the lack of written sources. After her death, she was buried in the church of St. Maria im Capitol, which she herself had endowed. In the 12th century, an elaborate tomb slab was designed for a sarcophagus, depicting her as a noble ruler. The tomb slab has survived the test of time, but her bones have been lost since the destruction in the Second World War. When the cleanup and reconstruction work began after the war, the stone sarcophagus was found amidst the rubble of the destroyed church. In the years that followed, Charles Mortel continued to expand his rule. He is a fascinating historical figure who, like his grandson Charles the Great, allows numerous interpretations and has been instrumentalized through the centuries in various ways for the respective Zeitgeist. However, this is not a podcast about the Carolingians. Certainly there is a separate podcast about the Frankish dynasty. I haven't looked that up, but I, I'm sure there is. Therefore only in highlights the work of Charles Martel. So we have all the events for our next episode. As the almighty mayor of the palace, Charles Martel continued to install a Merovingian king as his puppet. But none of the contemporaries were fooling themselves. Charles Martel was the real, true king of the Frankish Empire. In the last years of his life, his power was probably so consolidated that after the demise of the Merovingian king Teuderich IV in 737, he did not even see the need to install a new king from the Merovingian dynasty. So between the years 737 to 741, Charles Martel ruled openly, still as the mayor of the palace, without the Merovingian king, the Frankish Empire. But still, the highest rank Charles Martel gave himself was merely viceroy. When Charles Martel died in October 741, he was the first of his family dynasty to be buried in the burial church of the Merovingian kings in Saint-Denis, while the Merovingian kings were not allowed anymore to be buried in that church. So the symbolism of this act could not have been clearer. What makes Charles Martel famous to this day, despite his famous grandson Charles the Great, is this. In the year 732, Charles Martel defeated a Muslim army in what is now Western France at the Battle of Poitiers. His numerous victories in battles gave him the nickname Martel, which means the hammer in Latin. Whether this battle in Poitiers was really the salvation of the Christian West is a topic of discussion for historians, but certainly not for this podcast about the city of Cologne. 
Nevertheless, the outcome of the Battle of Poitiers halted the rapid advance of the Islamic expansion from the Arabian Peninsula via North Africa to Europe over Spain for the time being. Only Spain was under Islamic rule in Europe, where the Empire of the Visigoths, remember them, had previously fallen as a result. As you can see, this calls for a map. You can find it in the companion post of this episode. Link to it, as always, in the show notes. Or at thehistoryofcologne.com. So, let's leave it for today. There has been a lot of input again. We can draw as a conclusion that Plectrude stood as one example for the rise of the Carolingian dynasty. And unlike the Merovingians, who had their power base in the west of the empire, the Carolingians' power base was in the eastern part of the empire. Our Cologne, as this episode has made clear, was an important part of the Carolingian power base, and thus of its rise. The church of St. Mariam Capitol, first built by Plectrude, a Carolingian woman, is an architectural example of this to this day. What served me as historical source and scientific literature at this time? Well, at the time of this recording, all of Europe was in the middle of the third corona wave. It didn't give me much time privately to borrow or get the necessary literature. Click and collect is all well and good, but for bibliography, closed libraries are rather a hindrance. A source edition, which I had ordered in an antiquarian bookshop online, has unfortunately not yet arrived at the conclusion of this episode, even though I ordered like one and a half weeks ago. There, I would have liked to use quotations from contemporary sources from that time. I know that also Plectrude, as a female ruler of course, was evaluated quite differently by the male historians, mainly male historians. And even if this is unscientific, much of what I know about Charles Martel and Plectrude I have from my brain cells, which remember all this from the Middle Ages lectures from my university time. Valuable editions gave me, as before, the homepage of the Promotion Association of the Romanesque Churches in Cologne, known in German as Förderverein Romanische Kirchen in Köln, and the portal Rheinische Geschichte des Landesverbandes Rheinland, or in English, the portal Rheinische History of the Regional Association in the Rhinelands. The latter is an internet portal on Rhenish history, of course, in which well-known and renowned scholars write articles on all aspects of Rhenish history. Well, <sighs> Whew, I think that's it for today. Next episode, we will meet one of the most famous men of the Middle Ages and how he will travel to Cologne. It's Charles the Great, of course, or you call him Charlemagne. But unlike Trajan or Clotwig, Charles the Great comes to Cologne without much fanfare. He doesn't even come with an entourage. He comes all alone, disguised as a simple huntsman. And why does he do this? Well, you will find out in the next episode. As always, thank you for listening please feel free to recommend me if you like my podcast, which I assume you do if you have listened this far. And feel free to follow me on my social media accounts. All links in the show notes. Thank you so much for your support. Dankeschön. It really means a lot to me. Until then, 
Auf Wiedersehen.